all for justice and mercy. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Cheslev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these seven years, was it for me or was it that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous? Were there cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Would you pray with me? Uh, God in heaven, thank you for having a soft heart towards us, for not giving up on us, for making a way possible for us to be a part of your kingdom and family. Uh, Lord, as we practice the spiritual disciplines, the habits of grace, you know, our Bible intake, personal prayer, our church attendance and worship and, and involvement, help us to do these habits of grace with the right motives to love and worship and serve you. Forgive us for our hard hearts. Soften our hearts today, especially toward the vulnerable inside our church and the vulnerable outside. Would you keep our spiritual ears fully open to your voice in Scripture? Empower us to keep paying attention to you every minute of every day of our lives. And help me to speak your words today. Uh, and I ask for your power in this moment, Lord God. Uh, through Christ we pray. Amen. The current sermon series we are doing is on the book of Zechariah. The theme of this book is It Gets Better, very hope-giving book. And in short, the book of Zechariah is really a study in the art of demolishing, crushing discouragement, of saying no to spiritual lethargy and laziness, saying yes instead to paying full attention uh, to God. It's a study in getting back on track with God. Now, to set things up for this passage in chapter 7, I want to talk about every girl's best friend. What is every girl's best friend, and it may or may not be true, but it's a saying in our wider culture, every girl's best friend happens to be diamonds, okay? And, and obviously, it's an overstatement, it's a little cheesy, all right? I think guys like diamonds too, all right? But 
Why is it said generally that diamonds are a girl's best friend? It's because diamonds are valuable. Diamonds are beautiful. They, they glisten in the light and they kind of take your breath away. And the thing is, though, in, in addition to these beautiful, lovely, glistening diamonds, there are some ugly diamonds, you see, some non-glistening diamonds. And these, these are also very much highly sought after um, for industrial purposes, for construction purposes. These, these kinds of diamonds, you might say, are a tradesperson's best friend, okay? Industrial diamonds are a tradesperson's best friend. That's a, just rolls off the tongue as a new cultural saying from here on out. Anyhow, what are these industrial uh, diamonds used for? Well, they're, they put these diamonds and they crush them and they put them in little bits and pieces onto saw blades and then also onto drill bits, big drill bits, small drill bits. Now, why would they put them on saw blades and drill bits? It's because diamonds are one, if not the hardest substance and the most dense substance in the world. And as it turns out, because of their, their hardness, diamonds are extremely sought after to cut through things very effectively. In fact, if you've worked with diamond saw blades, have any of you worked with diamond saw blades? Okay, a few of you have. I've worked with them in landscaping and, and construction, and they can cut through concrete just like a hot butter knife goes through butter. It's just amazing, and it just that's why diamonds are a tradesperson's best friend. And as it turns out, uh, our passage today, as you may have noticed from uh, when Dave read it, it actually talks about some diamonds. And, and not in a good, attractive kind of way. We're not wanting the kind of diamonds that are spoken of in our passage. And the title for today's message is simply this, your heart. Your heart. Diamond hard or soft? Your heart is a diamond hard or soft? And in, in short, we will see the danger of, of having this diamond hard heart before God and other people, how spiritually dangerous this is, how unjust it is towards God and towards other people, how damaging it is to our soul, and we're going to drill down on that, so to speak. And we're also going to look at, and I hope you will do this, I hope you'll actually do this, because I'm going to do it as well, that we examine our hearts, we ask God to show us our hearts, and has our heart in some way or ways become diamond hard, or is it still soft as we trust the Lord? And so let's do a quick overview now as we shift we're going to get towards this passage and look towards it. I want us to look at the first part, the first section of chapter 7. Uh, look at verses 1 through 7 if you have it in front of you there. And what you need to know is that this Zechariah, he's, yes, a prophet of God sent. His job description is to foretell God's words to God's people. But also, in addition to that, we see that Zechariah is most likely uh, one of the priests of God. So there's a priestly team, if you will, and he is likely a priest of God. And what we see in this passage is that God's people, they come to consult with these priests, uh, of which Zechariah happens to be one of. And why do they come to the priests? Why do the people come to them? It's because they're looking for a consultation about spiritual direction, all right? And the, the people ask the priests, should we, guys, collectively as a nation, as a group of people, should we weep before the Lord? Should we fast from food over the course of the fifth month? Chislev, okay? That, by the way, on the Jewish calendar would have fallen sometime between July and August. Now, why did the people ask 
the priests, okay, should we do this collective weep thing? Should we do this collective fast thing before the Lord for about a month's time or over the course of the month? Because the reason that Chislev was chosen as the month for fasting and weeping, it is because it is the very same month that Babylon had conquered their beloved city of Jerusalem. It is the, the month in which the temple of the Lord was destroyed. Basically, it was the month that Jerusalem was kind of exploded. Essentially, they, they essentially blew up the city and destroyed it from top to bottom. And so since that terrible day, for 70 years, God's people took it upon themselves. Let's take this month because that's when everything went wrong for us. And now we're going to redeem that month, if you will. We're going to weep and pray before the Lord. We're going to fast from food during the course of the month to basically cry out to God, beg God over this this month, restore us back to Jerusalem, get us back to our homeland so that we, we can rebuild it and get our lives back and get our nationhood back. And that's what they did for 70 years during that month of Chislev. And so what happens during those 70 years of fasting and weeping and, and special time of prayer? Well, God answers their prayer. He allows them to return back to their homeland to rebuild. So now they're back and now they're rebuilding the temple Things are looking quite promising. And so the people come to the priests and they say, okay, we're back now, guys. Priests, we're back now. We're like we're rebuilding the temple. I mean, the Lord has answered our prayer, so do we really do we really have to keep on this weeping thing, this special time of prayer? Do we really have to do this fasting kind of thing anymore? I mean, I mean it's been solved. We don't have to do this anymore, right? And if as you hear them say this, and you see it in the passage, you can kind of hear the spiritual lethargy, the spiritual laziness in their voice. It kind of seems like they were viewing their, their weeping and, and their fasting before the Lord as simply a way of manipulating God to get what they wanted. Manipulating God to make our lives better. And that's what they were doing. That's what they're attempting to do. By the way, God will never be manipulated, just so you know. He will never be manipulated, but they were trying to do this and try to work God's score brownie points with God because notice God says to them in response to what they're saying, and here's what he says through Zechariah, and I kind of paraphrase here. You can look at the text for yourself. God essentially says, look, when you guys wept and you guys fasted during the month of Chislev over that 70 years, were you guys really doing it for me or were you really doing it for you? And when you broke that fast and you celebrated and you returned to eating and drinking again, was that for me or was that for you? And again, you're getting a sense. It's not so much that the Lord wants you to do certain things for Him. He just wants you. He just wants our hearts. He just wants our attention and our devotion and our loyalty. It's not what you do for Him like you're, I don't know, a, a rat on a treadmill doing good things for God. That's not it. And he just wants you. He's like a loving father that just wants to be with his kids. And he wants you to want that from him. And that leads us to our first point in our notes. Practicing habits of grace without God-centered obedience is empty. No substance. Nothing there. Practicing habits of grace without God-centered focus and obedience is empty. There's no substance to it. Is it for you or is it for God? I want to tell you a story. It's story time. And we're going to talk about a husband. And uh, husbands are interesting people, aren't they? Interesting people. <laughs> and this husband, he wants to be 
the best husband that he can be. He has a sense, okay, that his wife isn't happy with him. She's kind of not crazy about this guy anymore. It's like the magic, it's gone, it's gone into nothingness. And so it's, it's, he can tell it's, it's not good. So what does he do? He decides to go see a marriage counselor by himself, okay, without his wife. He's trying to, you know, trying to fix this. So he goes to his marriage counseling appointment and he asks the counselor, well, me, just tell me, what are the things I got to do to turn my marriage around? I want to be the very best husband that I can be. What do I got to do? You know these things, right? Well, the counselor says, yes, I do. I know these things. Here's what you do. Get your wife flowers once a week. Then take her out on a date two times a month, dinner and a movie. And then tell her every day that you love her. And then help out around the house and help out with the kids as often as you can. If you just do these things, you will be the very best husband that you can be. So the husband is like, bam, that's all I needed to know. Now I have a blueprint. Now I've got a roadmap for this thing. Thank you. That's all I needed to know. So he gets to work and he, he buys his wife flowers every week faithfully. He then takes her on a date twice a month, dinner and a movie. He, he tells her that he loves her every day. And, and then he helps out around the house as often as he can. And he, he's helping with the kids. He's a busy guy. Now, after doing this for a few months now, What's the prognosis? Do you think the marriage has gotten better? You're right. It's not better. It's even worse than it was. How's that possible? Well, here's how. Because you see, when the husband gives his wife the flowers, they're the day-old flowers. They're the cheap flowers. And when he gives her the flowers, he's like, here you go. Here you go. And when he takes his wife out on dates twice a month, Okay, you know where they go? They go to McDonald's. Don't do that. Do not take your... Okay, I guess you could. I mean, if you're really broke, I mean, I, I get it. But that's what he does. And then they, they go to the 99-cent movie theater. I don't think we have one in Lower Mainland, but that's what he does. And then he helps out around the house, and he helps out with the kids. And the way in which he helps out around the house and helps with the kids, he's grumpy, he's miserable, he's always in a bad mood, and he's full of resentment that he has to do this. So no wonder his marriage, it's in the gutter, man. Because you see, his heart's not in it. His heart's not in it. But when he talks to his co-workers, when he talks to his parents, he talks to his extended family members and his friends, you know what he says? He brags about how he is the best husband that he can be. He brags about all that he's doing for his wife and the, and the flowers and the date nights and the I love you's that without meaning and, and helping around the house and brags about this. And they hear him talk about all that he's doing. And you know what they say? They say, you must be the best husband in the world. And the husband's heart and ego swells. And basically, the head gets too big for his own shoulders. His ego is just massive now. Here's my point. You see where I'm going with this? This is what God's people were doing in Zechariah's day, going through the motions in order to try to manipulate God. And tragically, it was all about actually loving themselves. They were obsessed with self, not obsessed with God. That was the problem. And we fall into the same thing. We do what 
We do these spiritual disciplines, and I prefer to call them habits of grace. In short, habits of grace, they are the things we are commanded in Scripture to do as Christians. And we do these habits of grace to open up the pipeline of grace and power from heaven into our lives so that we can live changed lives. And these would include things like personal Bible reading and intake, eating Scripture for yourself, personal prayer, okay, church participation, serving, volunteering here, and then worshiping God corporately like we do on Sunday mornings. Taking communion would be a habit of grace. Giving of our tithes and offerings faithfully, a sacrifice of finances back to God's mission. And then hearing the sermon like you're doing now. This is a habit of grace, just what we're doing now. And then connecting with other Christians, loving other Christians, and then helping the vulnerable in our community, preparing Christmas hampers and donating Christmas hampers uh, to the poor in Cloverdale in connection with the Cloverdale uh, Community Kitchen. And on and on the habits of grace go, you see. Yes, we should do all of these things. But not, not, not for us. Not for you, not for Kurt. But we do it for one person and one person alone, and that, that is God. And so let us not use the habits of grace for selfish purposes to score brownie points with God so he'll bless our lives more and and make our lives easier and just make our lives better. No, may it never be. May it never be. Do you hear the heart of God in this passage? Again, more than anything, you know what God wants? He just wants you and your attention. He wants you to pay attention to him in large part because he knows that's what is best for you and is most life-giving for you. He doesn't want you to to perform for him like a trained seal. He wants you. He wants your heartfelt worship, your heartfelt loyalty, your heartfelt attention. Just like a wife, you know what she wants, generally speaking? She just wants her husband to, to love and cherish her and treasure her. And the same thing with God. So where are you at? Where am I at with these habits of grace? I mean... I, I'm so con- I'm, I can be very diligent, very consistent in these things, but then my heart wanders. Why am I doing these things? It's all about me, so I can feel better about myself because I'm doing all these habits of grace. No, that's not it. And so if you're in the same place, let us repent of anything in us that is proud of our doing habits of grace for, for ourselves. Let us repent of that, walk away from that, and receive His daily grace to change from that. He wants you. He wants you more than anything. He wants you. Let's move on. Let's talk about the next, or look at the next section in chapter 7. Verses 8 to 10, if you have them there in front of you. And here we see the Lord telling his people through Zechariah what he really wants from them. Okay? What he really wants from them. And what does God really want from his people? He wants true judgments. He wants them not only to exercise true judgments in the court of law, but guys, he's, he's saying to them, be just and fair to all in your everyday relationships, true judgments. Then the Lord says, well then, show kindness and mercy to one another, be gracious to each other, knowing that it's just a matter of time that you're going to need grace and mercy from other people because we're all pieces of work, we all wrong each other at various times. Okay, so show kindness and mercy to any and all at all times. And then God says, lastly, do not oppress the widow don't, do not oppress the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. Don't take advantage of the vulnerable. Don't treat the vulnerable, vulnerable poorly or take advantage of them. Instead, be generous. Be, be helpful to the vulnerable among you. This mic's driving me crazy. Sorry, guys. I don't, know, 
I go up, I go down. I don't know where the, the sweet spot is. But be generous to the vulnerable. Be helpful to the vulnerable among you. And this boils down to point number two in your notes if you're following along. We must, we've got to put this into practice as a church family. With Christ's help, keep your heart soft towards others, especially the vulnerable. Keep your heart soft with Christ's help, especially toward the vulnerable. Now, I'm going to give you an example, and this might be a really lame, lame example, but it's what came to me. I asked God to help me out here in the process of uh, you know, preparation. And so here, I'm just going to go with it. And the, the analogy has to do with uh, Play-Doh. Okay, so let's just talk about Play-Doh for a second. Um, and what some parents do for financial reasons and for health reasons, some moms and some dads make what is known as homemade Play-Doh. Anybody in the room make homemade Play-Doh before? A few of you? Okay, so some of you know what I'm talking about. And they do it for their little kids. Kids generally love Play-Doh, Okay. And this is what my mom did for me on the farm, and, and she was pretty good at baking stuff, and she made the, the, the homemade Play-Doh. And my favorite thing, and then food coloring, I think it was green or red and all the rest, and blue. And my favorite thing to make out of homemade Play-Doh were make-believe pancakes, because I love pancakes, especially as a kid. I, I Actually, I really like pancakes. And, uh, and so, but the problem is, I made little pancakes, and then I was tempted to eat the pancake. Okay, and you don't want to eat homemade Play-Doh. You know why? Salty. You do not want to do that. So I learned my lesson. Anyhow, in order to preserve this homemade Play-Doh and keep it around for a, a few weeks and a few months, uh, you've, you've got to freeze the stuff. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just rolling with the analogy here. So you've got to freeze the stuff, keep it in the freezer, and your kid can play with it later on. The problem is, chances are good, your toddler, he remembers the Play-Doh. I want to play with it now. I want to play with the Play-Doh now. And he knows it's in the freezer. So, mommy, daddy, get me the Play-Doh now. I want to play with it right in this moment. And little Johnny is very, little Bobby is very insistent. But you protest. You say, no, I'm sorry. It's frozen. It will not be fun to play with little Bobby. It's going to take a while, okay, to get soft. But little Bobby, he's having a temper tantrum. And so you say, and don't do this, by the way. Don't generally give in to temper tantrums because it backfires. But anyway, let's, let's just roll with it. You, you give in. You say, alrighty then. If you want your Play-Doh, I'll give it to you. And so you give him the frozen chunk of Play-Doh. Well, little Bobby, at first, he's thrilled when he gets to finally, gets his way, he gets to play with his beloved Play-Doh. But when he gets his hands on it, his smile turns upside down. It turns to a frown. Why? Because not only is the Play-Doh like super cold and hard for him to touch, but it's hard as a rock. He's kind of ticked off, actually. Okay? But here's the thing. The thing about little Bobby that you don't know is he is a very determined individual. He is, very, he is type A all through and through. And he wants to play with his Play-Doh super bad ASAP. So what does he do? He works the dough minute after minute, squeeze after squeeze, massage after massage, rolling it around, creating energy in and around this Play-Doh, this frozen Play-Doh. And little Bobby, he manages to massage this Play-Doh and work it until it finally and fully defrosts. It warms up now. And the Play-Doh is successfully manipulatable. It is successfully soft. And he can make pancakes again. And he is, he's in, it's like he's in heaven. Breakfast heaven. And anyhow, here's my point. You and I... <laughs> You and I need Jesus in like manner, in a serious way, 
We need Jesus Christ to keep our hearts soft on an ongoing sense. We need Jesus to mold and to shape and work and, and, and help our hearts remain, so, remain open, remain soft towards other people, especially in our family, but especially the vulnerable in our church and also those in our church family and, and wider society. This may sound harsh or judgmental, but it's a bit of a rant here. So here's you can judge whether I'm right or wrong on this, but when, when I hear Christians saying things about the homeless, things like, have you heard this, by the way? Why don't they just get a job? Why don't they just stop drinking? Why don't they just stop, stop it with the drugs and get a life and get their lives back on track? What's their problem? Or the NIMBY concerns, as in not in my backyard, okay? Not in my backyard. In other words, how dare they try to put up that homeless shelter or that new housing complex uh, for the homeless? How dare they do it next door to where I live? I mean, it's only going to bring down the price of my home. The value of my home is going to tank. How dare they? And, you know, when I hear these kinds of sentiments from Christians, I literally shudder. I'm just like, oh, like, keep your eyes open. I mean, I'm not a big believer that lightning could strike at any moment, but I, seriously, I'm just like, I shudder. I shudder to think what God thinks uh, of those uh, hard-hearted opinions and judgments when they are said by Christ-following people. But you know what? Sometimes I have those thoughts. I have those judgmental, hard-hearted thoughts and feelings and I, I, I see them. I don't, I don't even see them sometimes. And they come out of nowhere. And, you know, I'll be up at the, the intersection, and there's the guy begging for money. I'm just like, oh, not again. You know, there's, feel, there's negative feelings towards an individual like that. Like, what am, I, what am I thinking? And these feelings and these thoughts, they come up within. And the reason that they still come up within us is because there's still remaining sin in us. That you know, we're still pieces of work that Jesus needs to work with and, and massage and, and change. That's why we need Jesus more than anything, we need him. We need to abide with Jesus as often as we can, connect with Jesus, and every minute of every day, we're, we're, we're in a state of prayer. Like, save me from me, Lord Jesus. Keep my heart soft like Play-Doh toward all people, toward the vulnerable especially. Lord Jesus, forgive me for this hard-heartedness and this judgmentalism and this self-righteousness towards others that tends to lurk and creep back into my, into my words and my thoughts and my, my life. Lord Jesus, keep my heart soft towards all, just as your heart is soft and uh, toward all, that you don't want anyone to perish. So save me from me. That's number two. Let's move on to the next section. We're going to roll on to verses 11 to 14. We're making good time here. The last bit of the passage, uh, what is it speaking of? Here in this last bit is a reminder, and this is pretty negative stuff from God here. This is a reminder to God's people from God about why in the first place he allowed uh, superpower nations to overtake Israel back in the day. It began with Assyria in the 700s BC. And, and Assyria was just a devastatingly uh, violent nation. They were like the Klingons in Star Trek, like that ugly. And they came in and they assimilated uh, the northern tribes of Israel, took part of them off, and they basically essentially just disappeared into nothingness. Okay, just horrible judgment 
from God. But then God allows Babylon to overtake Judea and allows them to spend 70 years of, of, uh, as captives in this foreign nation of Babylon. Now, why did God discipline his people and then scatter them into the whirlwind? Like, scatter them into the whirlwind to other nations like that? It's because what does God want? He just wants their attention. They refused, though. They said, nope, you know what? Sorry, God, we're not paying attention to you. We're going to figuratively plug up our ears to your voice, to the prophets that you send us. We're plugging up our ears to refuse to listen to your word in Scripture. And they're shutting God out. Now, why in the world would they shut God out like this? Well, here's why. They made their hearts diamond hard through their choices and their decisions. They made their hearts diamond hard. And when I first saw this phrase, diamond hard, the first thing that came to my mind is, I, d- I didn't think they had diamonds back then. Okay? Did they really have diamonds back in Bible times? The answer is possibly. Uh, actually, the Hebrew word that's used in this passage for diamond hard or diamond it can also be translated, well, it's, it's shamir, just so you know, a little tidbit. But anyhow, it can also be translated as flint or adamant. You know, when you're adamant, you're, you're not moving. Okay? You are bound and determined to stay in that place. You're immovable, okay? And there's another Hebrew word for diamond, but I won't go, go into that right now. But the point is here, we use the ESV Bible translation. It's a good translation. And the translators of this translation, they decided to go with diamond hard for a purpose. Why? To convey the idea of just how hard our hearts can become before God. Our hearts can become before God as hard as the hardest substance known to man. And when that happens, we've got big problems. God simply will not let it slide. If you choose, or a nation chooses, or a church chooses, to make our hearts diamond hard towards God, He will not let it slide and say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, no, no. There's consequences, man. And that leads us to our final point in our notes, number three. Closing our ears to God's voice and not paying attention to Him results in our having diamond hard hearts headed toward judgment. It's there. It's there. It's there. One of my favorite doctrines in the Bible is the idea of being born again. Reborn. And you'll see it in films like Lord of the Rings. You'll see it in Star Wars, the idea of being reborn and resurrected. In fact, almost any superhero movie, I think there's resurrection all over those films. And where does this idea of resurrection come from? Uh, It comes from Scripture and, and being reborn. And this is what happens to the Christian, reborn by God's grace. And one of the most powerful sneak previews that we see of this doctrine occurs in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 28. I refer to this passage very often and have because it makes it crystal clear as to what being born again is. And it's true. And it's exactly why many people struggle. You know, I've encountered a lot of people over the years, and they say, why can I not change? Why can I not get rid of this sinful addiction in my life? I just can't seem to change at all. Well, it comes down to this. First of all, there's hope for you, but there's a reason why you can't change long term. And here's what Ezekiel says. I'll let God speak through him uh, for himself. And here's what it says. God speaking, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and 
cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so what God is telling us through Ezekiel here is we need to undergo a heart transplant where God gets rid of that spiritual, stony, diamond-hard heart and He just gets it out of there. And then He replaces your heart with a new heart, a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Then the Lord, He then, in addition to that, puts His own Holy Spirit within us to then empower us to obey His commands, but even more than that, to actually want to obey God's commands in the Bible. We, he changes our want-tos. So how do we receive this heart transplant, this new life, this new power, this new hope? You've got to turn to Jesus with repentance. You've got to turn to Jesus with faith. You believe that He lived your perfect life for you, that He died for your sins on the cross in your place, and that He rose again. And then Jesus commands that you are not to just repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in the Gospel, but He commands that you are to be baptized as He was baptized. And at which point, we're talking about conversion here. In, this, in these steps that you take, you turn to the Lord, and what happens is your diamond heart heart that refused to listen to God, that wanted nothing to do with Jesus, wanted nothing to do with the Bible or with the church, thought it was all nonsense, well, all of that has been replaced with a new, fleshy, soft heart towards God and towards other people. Your family, soft heart towards your coworkers, soft heart towards the vulnerable. You actually find yourself caring about the homeless and doing stuff about it. You find your heart soft towards the things of the church. You actually want to come to church. You actually want to worship. You actually want to love other Christians here. Your want-tos have been changed. And at which point, if that happens to you, that's a good day. Because you see, the Lord's judgment has been diverted onto Jesus instead of it coming to land onto you in the end. You've got now a wonderful future. You see, Jesus was judged for you in your place on the cross. Thanks be to God. And so let me close with, with this challenge. If you're not yet a Christian, simply come to Jesus. Let's have a conversation about that step after the service today or this week. Talk to me. Talk to somebody Trusted Christian friend, I mean, if you are ready to repent of your sins, trust and believe in the gospel and what Christ has done for you, that he was judged for you, you are ready for baptism. Then, Christian, let me challenge you with this as I come in for a landing. I want to ask you, and I want you to consider this. Have you in any way allowed this new heart that you received, have you allowed this new heart to become hard in places? Is it hard in some places? Is there any diamond-like qualities in this new heart that you've received from God? It was soft and now it's become hard again. Turn from your hard-heartedness. Confess your sins to God. Receive His daily grace and His mercy that is available uh, from God's throne through Jesus. And just receive that. And communion is a wonderful, ideal place. This meal that we're participating in a second, it is the ideal place to come clean before God and ask Him, show me any hard-heartedness and help me to repent from that and change from that. I can confess it back to Him and He will forgive you. Uh, let's pray as we bring this to a close. <clears throat> Lord, what a gift uh, being reborn is. It helps us. It gives us power to change. Power to be saved gives us hope for a future. And it's all, all 
because of your gospel, all of what you've done for us. And so we come to this meal today, Lord, as a church family, to remember and celebrate all that you've done for us. You are a God of love and of grace and of mercy, and you want none to perish. You want all to come to repentance. And so we are wanting to remember and celebrate your life lived for us, your death died for us, and your resurrection, because your resurrection is now our resurrection. That resurrection power is what we need to, be, to live changed lives that bring honor and glory to you and empowers us for mission to help others become Christians. And so we honor, we love, we celebrate, we worship you in this moment because you are the God who saved us from ourselves, you saved us from death, you saved us from, from hell, you saved us from our sins, and we are so grateful. Through Christ we pray. Amen.